that's what we're here to do. We're here to take Iowa and to make sure and recenter politics for the working class in the United States of America. We're here to assert and advance a suite of, of 21st century economic, social, and human rights in this country. That's what we're here to do. And, you know, I, I've been thinking about um, a lot of what I've seen in Iowa in the last few days and a lot of what I've experienced in my community in the last year. And uh, when we talk about a, a movement for working people in this country, what we mean is a, is a movement for working power in this country for, for that, so that uh, working class Americans have power in our electoral, pro, uh, electoral system and our democracy once again. Gold. I'm the Amusements and Managing Editor at Current Affairs. I'm Brian. I'm a union organizer from North Carolina, and I'm on the editorial collective for Strike Wave. Uh, I'm Ash, producer and co-ghost of Horror Vanguard and writer on all things spooky and unusual. I am Mel G. I am the associate editor of online content at Protean Magazine and the upcoming podcast editor of our Protean Podcast. All right. Well, welcome everyone. Um, so great to to have all, you all here. Uh, I'm really, really excited for this special um, episode that we here at Working People are doing with uh, Protean Magazine. Um, you know, we we've gotten a lot of uh, requests from from our listeners who you know are spending every day kind of trying to sift through just the endless deluge of news about the presidential election. I mean, we've been through this before. We know that when there's an election on, it just fucking sucks all the oxygen out of the room. And it's it's it can get pretty hard to make heads or tails of it, especially with all the kind of like you know, interceding interests involved, all the, you know, bullshit punditry. And so, you know, a lot of folks have been reaching out just asking for, you know, kind of like a working class primer on how to approach the 2020 election, uh, how working people should, you know, engage with uh, electoral politics in general. And, you know, I don't I don't want to kind of oversell what we'll be able to provide here. But, you know, we brought together this incredible panel of people, uh, brilliant people who are working on brilliant projects um, to kind of just, you know, share our thoughts and, and let you know what we've been paying attention to, what we think others should be paying attention to. And, you know, we wanted to, to get together and uh, record this before the first, uh, you know, the first big kind of event in the primaries. We got the Iowa caucuses coming up next week. And so uh, we're going to try to get this out and uh, hopefully it'll be useful for folks uh, who are trying to kind of figure out what the hell is is going on and, and you know, where they should be in, you know, relationship to the whole electoral process. Um, so like I said, uh, you know, 
We have an incredible panel of folks, and we are co uh, kind of producing this with our comrades over at Protean Magazine. And so, Mel, I wanted to just kind of throw it over to you real quick to um, kind of get a little intro and hear what's going on on the Protean side. Well, um, <clears throat> we just sent our second issue of our print magazine um, to the printer. Max, you are featured in that magazine, so we will be releasing that soon. <clears throat> But in the, in the realm of podcasting, um, we are producing a podcast. It will be released at some point in the next month and a half or so. It's called We Regret the Error, and it's going to be sort of this examination of the intersections between leftist ideology, anti-capitalism, and uh, media. So um, I, think, I think it's really going to be an interesting sort of uh, start to further conversations and we are hoping to provide a platform both for our writers poets our creative writers but also to just have larger discussions about media di uh, digital media and um, how we can sort of fold in the leftist politics that all of us generally deal with anyway so I'm excited I can't I can't wait to to show the listeners uh what we've been working on and hopefully I'll be able to have more concrete announcements as this next month comes along hell yeah well everyone should go pick up a copy of the new issue of Protean um Lida our girl Lida's in there too as well isn't she right yep yeah oh man it's gonna be fun I, I can't wait for you guys to see it because it is beautiful. I think we're going to be releasing some some um, stills of the inside of it uh, so you can kind of see the design. And um, I'm really proud of, of the work that the editorial board has been doing and that the collective has really put into the second issue. And I think 2020 is also going to produce more issues that are going to be equally as badass. Hell yeah. Oh, I can't wait for that. And, and you know, I don't want it to be lost on anyone that, you know, the rest of our amazing panelists are producing killer stuff. You know, if you haven't already, you should definitely check out Strike Wave. Subscribe to their newsletter if you want updates on the latest uh, labor news around the country. Uh, Brian, Brendan, all the comrades there are doing really incredible work. Um, you know, it goes without saying that Lida and the whole Current Affairs crew are killing it with their magazine, with the podcast. Um, they're just really, really, really bringing a lot of great voices and perspectives into kind of the the left, and and you know, bringing those to a broader reading and listening public. And we're we're really grateful for that. And, you know, Ash and, and John over at Horror Vanguard are producing an incredible podcast, a fun podcast um, that, that looks at kind of the horror genre, uh, horror films, and, and kind of uh, analyzes them from, you know, a left-wing, more Marxist perspective. And it's just really fun to listen to, really informative and engaging. Uh, so, yeah, just a, before we get going, I just wanted to give give a big fat shameless plug for all the great work that everyone here uh, is doing. So now, um, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's buckle down and, you know, dig into, you know, the, let's dive into the abyss. <laughs> you know, like, um, so we got a, we got a lot, a lot of stuff to talk about and, you know, we're going to, we're probably going to do more of these types of panel episodes. Again, we wanted to get this out. Uh, we wanted to get this recorded and get it out before Iowa. So, you know, there, there are certain kind of, um, limitations on what we're going to do today. 
Um, for instance, you know, we, we were trying to decide which candidates to, to focus on, and we thought it would be best and, and economical to take the, the kind of top five candidates based on, like, average polling in Iowa. Um, so even though, like, you know, someone like fucking Michael Bloomberg is is kind of polling quite well nationally in the last few weeks. Um, He's basically a non-factor in Iowa. So we've kind of left Bloomberg out of of the discussion today, um, at least in terms of the focusing on the top five candidates in Iowa. Um, But, you know, before we get going, gang, um, I thought it would be good, you know, if we just kind of went around the table and gave some of our like framing thoughts on you know just just how you approach elections how you think you know working class folks um should should approach elections you know we we put the question out on twitter um and a lot of the responses that we got of of issues that folks wanted us to cover i think were kind of in in that general vein right they they were more in the vein of like you know how, for instance, um, do do we as as citizens, right? Where do we come in in terms of like pushing forward like a Bernie Sanders agenda, right? Or like what do we do if you know, say Bernie Sanders gets elected, um, and you know all of our dreams don't immediately come true, then what, right? How much focus and energy? Should we be pouring into local, state, and national elections um, compared to other, you know, endeavors like organizing our workplaces? There's a lot, you know, a lot of people have questions about about kind of just generally how we should approach elections. So I thought before we kind of dig into the candidates themselves, I kind of wanted to just, you know, hear what y'all um, have to have to say about that. I'm. I've always been sort of an advocate more for a push to, to focus on local, state, and municipal elections because, uh, particularly since the socialist movement in the United States is so comparatively small and so comparatively weak, like those are the interventions where I think we can actually have the biggest positive effect. And you can also look at places like Charlottesville, for instance, where uh, this past uh, municipal election cycle, um, they got a DSA member, uh, the DSA chapter there got a DSA member, Michael Payne, elected to the city council. So, and this is a chapter that's extremely well-known for their anti-fascist organizing um, throughout the organization. So, from my perspective, like, there's a tendency to to focus a lot on federal-level politics because that's where sort of... Um, a lot of the, the money and the energy and the news cycle is. But at the same time, like a lot of these state-level races are really important to working-class communities. I'll give you an example from North Carolina, where I'm from. Um, there is an absolute horrendous uh, labor commissioner who has been in office for 16 years. Um, she has opted to retire, and she quite literally ran, for, started running for office because she got dinged by the Department of Labor for doing something at her business she wasn't supposed to. She has spent the past 16 years, this, her name is Cherie Berry, um, and she's awful. And on her watch, thousands of workers have died in North Carolina, and she's generally taken a soft touch on regulating um, 
workplaces while basically carving out a niche as being the elevator queen of North Carolina because elevator safety is under the Department of Labor in the states. So the upcoming election for that, where there's going to be a vacancy and there's an actually a really strong kind of left liberal candidate running, uh, her name Jess- her name's Jessica Holmes. Like that's going to be a really important um, race to address things like wage theft and workplace safety. Like these are things that that could quite literally save lives. While on a federal level, like a lot of the stuff that we're hoping to get out of Sanders, uh, out of Sanders' presidency, is going to face some pretty stiff opposition, even within the Democratic caucus. So focusing like on all levels of government and doing a lot of things like building out sort of movement infrastructure and building out not just sort of like like a candidacy and, and a winning candidate on their own will have a very short shelf life. It's entirely dependent on how long they hold office, right? But at the same time, like if you build out sort of a whole network of interrelated institutions that can put pressure and, and have power outside of the immediate uh, chance to hold government, like that's going to be what allows us to set up future shots and more candidates and win more offices. I really like that. Um, so for me, this is Leda, um, I have to establish that I come at this from, I grew up in a, a college town in the Midwest, so very like Pete Buttigieg kind of childhood, except not Professor, not Professor Parents. Um, you mean the heartland? The, I'm from the heartland. <laughs> oh, from, but I, and it's funny, it's funny how bullshit that is. <laughs> because, well, okay, yeah, I don't want to just like yell about how bullshit this is. It's very bullshit. And it's like, it's being from a college town in the Midwest is a very different experience than being from other parts of the Midwest than like, you know, like decaying industrial towns or whatever. Anyway, whatever. Not going to get off on that. Um, but anyway, because I grew up in this like kind of like asshole PMC milieu, like there's a certain attitude that you get about elections with, with a PMC crowd that is... You know, elections are spectacle, they're sporting events, they're like, you know, it's, you know, it's like American Idol, you get very invested and very passionate, and it's something that you are really into when the cycle happens, and, you know, all, all you, you know, you might do a little campaigning, but all you really do is vote, and then, like, that's it, and then, like, you know, that's sort of the joke that, you know, if, you know, if Hillary had won, we'd be at brunch right now. I mean, that's, like, a very indicative of a certain attitude, um, and that is not, it's not good. And it's also, it's really not going to work this time, especially if Bernie wins. Um, actually, I, in any direction, no matter who wins, um, because no matter who wins, we, we don't get to stay home. We still have lots and lots of work to do. Um, and I think that's easier for people who are already invested in union organizing is easier for them to understand because like, obviously it's a thing that you do all of the time. Um, yeah, I think it's... Brian said this a lot more eloquently. It's, you know, focusing on local issues, focusing on local races is really, really important, not just these big sort of dramatic federal events, but also, you know, a lot of important policies made at the federal level. And a lot of, uh, you know, it's kind of sucks, actually, but a lot of the way we do the law now is through just these like sweeping executive orders. And it's probably not really a good thing or a healthy thing, but a lot of the damage that Trump was able to, has been able to accomplish has been through executive orders. Uh, you know, environmental uh, regulation rollbacks and a lot of the, uh, a lot of the horrible stuff at the border. That's all been executive orders. So, but to in order to make the executive orders that we want to happen, and in order to like put the appropriate pressure, 
again, even if it's Bernie, we still have to be engaged and we still have to be you know, doing the work and we still have to be protesting. We still have to be doing organizing work on an often on a very like basic intercommunity level. Um, nobody gets to go to brunch, but I think working people generally understand that a little bit better. And I think a lot of people's disengagement from politics is because they see it as just like, you know, it's just, it, it does seem like a dumb horse race that only a certain kind of person is into. Um, but it, it, electoral politics do matter. They're not everything, they're not the end of everything, but they do matter quite a bit. Yeah, very, very well said. I, I agree with, um, a lot of what you were saying there. I think that for me... You can disagree too, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I, I, okay. I, I would, but it was also correct. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I like to hear. There you go. Nice. Good. Um, happy to please. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that. Like, I think it's um, it's important to to kind of work the system where we can. And like, I I approach electoral politics with a lot of skepticism because my entire life up until uh, the election of Trump, like it was just status quo management. And then now we have on on both the left and the right uh, movers and shakers, if you will, uh, making their political moves. You know, like uh, Chicago. I think they over the last year they've elected six open socialists to the local government, and like that 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 gets a wowzers from me. That's that's pretty interesting. And I think um, the kind of the way I approach this is that we're we're putting people in office that we can work with and we can work against you know so so now we have an opportunity to like if bernie sanders is elected president we stand a good chance of being able to move him even further left than we do uh warren or Buttigieg or um michael bennett <laughs> i don't know is he still even in the race but um i think uh one of the one of the important things i think about is that you know this kind of energy that we're feeling right now this 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 like you know i i've never seen the american left this energized you know, and a lot of that energy is focused around like Bernie Sanders, AOC, all of these like uh, socialist and DSA candidates that are popping up everywhere. And like that is fantastic to see. But I, I think we should keep in mind, like, how can we move that energy forward and beyond just just candidates? You know, because there's always the threat of what if Bernie loses? And then even if Bernie wins, he's got to do it again in four years. And then four years after that, it's an entirely different game. So it's about it's about finding that that passion that you have for these causes and then reconnecting that to, I think, like we've all been saying, local issues that you care about. So if you really care about Bernie Sanders because he's he's the best candidate for unions or he's the best candidate for healthcare or something like that, find ways to connect that energy back into your local community and start start building an organization or working with something that already exists. I mean, I agree. I, there is a Dem sock that is currently uh, campaigning for a legislative seat um, for the state of Nebraska. And I think that um, one thing as a sort of, I don't even know where I fall on the political spectrum anymore, left somewhere, used to be a pretty staunch um, anarchist who had a lot of voter apathy, who wasted a vote on Hillary Clinton in 2016 and, and found myself extremely disappointed by the outcome. Um, it's taken a lot of like real um, conversation with myself and with others around me like Ash and like uh, other um, comrades to really sort of figure out exactly what we plan to do in terms of how we want to treat voting. Um, and I think a lot of working class people see voting as as one way to remain civically engaged um, and also run up against these same sort of feelings of apathy and status quo um, retention, you know. Um, 
And I think you make a really good point about this process doesn't just end with a general election for president. We have elections in two years to determine um, whether or not any of Bernie's proposed policies will get enough votes in Congress and Senate um, to move forward and be passed into laws. Like it, this is not just a process that ends at the end of this year. It, it continues on and and it requires us to remain sort of uh, vocal about the issues that are important to us. Um, and especially because there are individuals in our communities who either are incapable of engaging in the same way or, um, you know, don't necessarily feel that they have the ability to help or are apathetic to it that still also deserve the benefit of some of these policies, right? And um, I teach English comp classes at the university that I work at, um, and these students are 18, 19 years old. This will be the first election that they're voting in. Um, and many of them ask questions on a regular basis about how to become civically engaged, right? And I, one thing that I want to point out that we haven't really touched on yet in terms of um, young voters is that um, oftentimes information is chaotic and hard to come by. And one thing that I've really noticed while doing the research for this particular conversation is that everyone puts their best policies on their website and then if you look at how they respond to questions about those policies, you know, um, as the uh, election cycle progresses, um, they always walk them back. And you don't necessarily find that on the website. They're not going to update it when they're in a, uh, you know, uh, a speech to Wall Street and they walk back some of the hardline policies that are very clear and very optimistic and very hopeful on their websites. And the advice that I got when I was a young voter was, go to their website, read their platform, you know, and I think it requires a little bit more engagement with the conversation um, and to be willing to listen to how the conversation progresses in the media and, and also as media professionals ourselves to be able to provide, uh, continuously provide the same sort of information that we're doing in this podcast so that, um, you know, listeners and readers have a variety of perspectives from which they can inform themselves. Otherwise, this whole process is just moot, you know. Yeah, no, I thought, I mean, that was all, from all you brilliantly put, and, and all really important points, yeah, and I mean, I, I think that, you know, at least in terms of, um, you know, framing how we approach elections, it seems that, you know, we're, we're more or less kind of in agreement, right, that they're not the end-all, be-all, um, there, there is, you know, there are varying kind of levels of importance, um, and, and varying degrees to which, you know, elections are going to directly impact your life at the local, state, municipal, national level, um, but also, you know, of course, there, there are plenty of other, you know, realms of political engagement that, you know, we cannot lose sight of every time, you know, a big election comes up and every time, you know, the mainstream media that, that we're, you know, plugged into is kind of encouraging us to to get swept up in and, and to create this huge kind of exhaustive spectacle over, um, you know, they're, 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 our attention and our energies are being pulled in a lot of different directions. And so it is, I think, important for us to kind of stay grounded, stay centered, remember the things that that really, you know, are important to us and, and to think kind of critically and, and strategically about uh, where we can kind of impact the, the levers of, of 
political power. And I kind of wanted to just like make make two quick points um, on that note, kind of responding to some of the things that, that y'all were saying. Right? Because obviously, um, you know, we'll ine- we inevitably get the questions from, um, you know, the, the sad boys of the Internet um, who, you know, are saying like, well, you know, fuck elections. Elections are dumb. I mean, like they you are kind of endorsing with your vote, you know, a corrupt uh, political system um, or by like engaging in electoral politics. You are taking your time and energy away from more fruitful kind of endeavors that can improve the lives of working people, yada, well, like yada, posting? yada. Like posting? Come on, dudes. <laughs> Fuck like you guys. Post Get for the masses. There's, honestly, there's an interesting conversation that I came across actually on Twitter recently that sort of talks about the online election and what actually happens on the ground when you actually have these conversations face-to-face and view the reality of how the election is moving. And I think a lot of it is going to be we're going to be able to see how how different that is as the the primaries continue to roll forward and we get actually into the whole cycle of choosing our next president just how big the disparity is between the online conversation and how it's actually playing out among the voters which will be you know it'll be interesting for me because I am extremely online and you know I hopefully my my sense of things is not nearly as skewed as some would like to think you know and I would hope that the harm reduction or whatever type of people who are begrudgingly voting or who are apathetic about the, the system in general um, choose to engage in a little bit of nuance and to see that the vast majority of voters um, are not trying to be complicit in a uh, naturally unequal system, you know? And I think that definitely this idea that This is just another tool in the toolbox in terms of how we build uh, communities that are grounded in, you know, the type of solidarity and mutual aid that we attempt to create on a regular basis, you know. And one thing I'd I'd point out is that we all sort of largely agree that this is just one domain of struggle. The thing is, there's a lot of people for whom elections are the be-all, end-all like, we'll pay lip services, right, to, hey, we need to do all of this stuff together. And then there's, there's nowhere to be fucking found when the time comes and people need to show up to protest against, you know, a war against Iran or, like, when the time comes for housing organizing. Like, there's also very much sort of a demobilizing element to, to electoral politics and Iowa comrade couple of months ago said basically if you've ever been in Iowa after the caucuses it's like all the serotonin is left the state like there's a very real like cost participating in electoral politics because it's it necessitates moving us into a win-loss structure with very specific rules about how we operate and and it, it has a tendency to basically drive political struggle into these, you know, two-year cycles. And and so it's really, really important to make sure our involvement in electoral politics is, like, understanding the fact that this is literally just one domain of struggle and it isn't the preeminent domain of struggle. Right, yeah, I think, I think that's a really, really important um, point to... Um, to make right and 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 this is um 
you know, yeah, what I what I would generally say to folks who kind of make those points, right, about not wanting to to validate this this unjust system with your vote, and it's like, man, this system's gonna keep fucking you over one way or the other. It doesn't need you to validate it, right? So, yes. like, you know, you need to you need to move on from that like notion quick, fast, and in a hurry. And like, also in terms of of elections, kind of. Um, sapping our time and energy away from more fruitful endeavors. I think another point I wanted to make is like, you know, that is also a very individualistic way of thinking about political engagement. It's like, yeah, you know, elections do take, you know, time and effort away from you personally, especially when you're working one, two, three jobs, right? It's it's very easy to think of like, you know, well, I only have so much that I can do. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to like rank elections at the top of, of, you know, my political priorities. And I would just kind of say that like you know we need to think of the the struggle as brian said in much more expansive and collective terms right we need to be kind of offering support for the efforts that you know other folks are putting in to organize tenant unions right or to protest an unjust firing down the road right we need to i guess think uh, you know about building solidarity, showing support when we can, and and thinking about the struggle in those collective terms um, that that expand beyond right your own individual capacities. Right, I've said many times before that no one has to do everything, but everyone has to do something, and our political vision should uh, be able to kind of take the totality of those political efforts um, under kind of like a single heading and in a push for a more just and, and equitable and dignified life for working people everywhere. And, you know, as, as a final note, um, you know, I wanted to, to say I thought I thought Lida's point about, you know, the whole liberal idea of like if, if Hillary was elected, we'd be at brunch right now. You know, I think that that just so perfectly encapsulates the kind of like liberal centrist, um, you know, kind of upper class mindset where, you know, what they're obviously saying is they want politics to be taken off their plate. Right. They don't want to have to think about it. Right. And, and they want to entrust, you know, like that political process, the process of governance. You know, they want to entrust that to kind of the technocrats that they elect and they don't have to think about until the next election cycle. And, you know, this is this is something that I think, you know, on the flip side, when we're talking about the working class, you know, this is not a luxury that working people can ever afford, right? I mean, we're going to be dealing with kind of the effects of um, these political shifts one way or another, you know, and add to that, you know, we're, we're going to kind of, um, you know, be, be like struggling to, to make ends meet. And, you know, we're, we're not going to have a whole lot of time um, to kind of do anything to change that kind of system, which again is why we need to do it collectively. And, you know, this, I think this is also just, you know, like the, the kind of point that I wanted to make is that this is, this is, I think what makes working class politics such a dicey thing, right? You know, cause like I said, we are, we are asking people who are already stretched so thin by this unjust exploitative system to spend their limited time and energy uh, and resources fighting on all these fronts. And I think that's why it's so important to understand our fight in, you know, the electoral realm and beyond, right? In, in different terms as not just kind of like a, a net negative on our political energies, but to remind ourselves and each other what in fact, you know, we are fighting for. And my, what I mean by that is like, you know, if you are 
fighting for you know a, a shorter work day right or or paid family leave right or or like to abolish the student debt you are demanding of the system that it returned the freedom that you have to live your life the way that you want to live it the it, to return that freedom to you the freedom that it has stolen from you and so i think the more that we can reaffirm that message that you know we're not just fighting exhaustively to kind of uh you know keep things from getting worse we are actively fighting to win back the freedom that's been taken for us so that we can rest more so that we can create more so that we can live the sorts of lives that right now are the privilege of the wealthy and the elite here here yeah fuck yes yeah. totally yeah <laughs> that was great that was a call to arms if we are serious about rebuilding the american middle class if we are serious about reinvigorating american democracy we need to develop a political movement which once again is prepared to take on and defeat a ruling class whose greed is destroying our nation. Today in America, we are the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. But few Americans know that because so much of the new income and wealth is going to the people on top. In fact, over the last 30 years, there has been a massive redistribution of wealth. Problem is, it has gone in the wrong direction. The very rich get richer. Almost everyone else gets poorer. Super PACs funded by billionaires buy elections. Koch brothers alone and a few of their friends will spend more money in this election cycle than either the Democratic or Republican parties. Ordinary people, working people, young people, don't vote. We have an economic and political crisis in this country. And the same old, same old politics and economics will not effectively address those crises. All right, so let's let's uh, dig into these candidates. Um, like I said in the intro, um, we are uh, taking a, a deep dive into um, the top five candidates based on average polling um, from Iowa. Right, so, so this is a real clear politics average of like ten different polls, um, and so on the list we've got uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Joe No Malarkey Biden. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, um, Pete Buttigieg, and uh, Amy Klobuchar. And so we're going to, you know, hopefully have time to kind of at the end share any thoughts that we have about the remaining candidates, uh, Yang, Tulsi, so on and so forth. But, you know, since these are the top five polling candidates, we wanted to kind of give our listeners like a chance to kind of get to know our thoughts on, on each one of these. And so what we've done is we've kind of 
split things up. We've spread the the load around, and um, we've had we've assigned each one of us has been assigned to two different candidates um, to give a pro stance for one of them and an anti stance for the other. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna try to see how that works um, because we didn't want it to be too lopsided because. You know, we we had to basically enforce some sort of rules to make us say anything good about Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg, but we're doing it for you, so we hope hope it's appreciated. So fair and balanced coverage, exactly. <laughs> so so with that in mind, um, we're gonna start at number five and work up. Um, so uh, to start us off, we've got the clobber herself, <laughs> Amy Klobuchar, um, and. We've got our very own beloved Lida Gold, who who volu- who jumped at the chance, who volunteered willfully to to give the pro stance for for Amy Klobuchar. So Lida, what do you got? <laughs> okay, so I mean, okay, I, I love Amy, and not too differently from the way that I love Kamala. Like it's a, it's a it's a strange love. It's not quite the same as my friend Jaya, who like loves Amy, but we'll talk about that. Um, I guess I'll go through my list. I made a list of all of her pros. Um, uh, so a pro for Amy Klobuchar, uh, her arm strength, uh, her, she's got great Dom energy. Um, uh, this, this one friend of my mom really likes her. Um, I, she's the only person I know who likes Klobuchar, but she's kind of a mean lady and she doesn't really like anybody, but she likes Klobuchar. So that's cool. Um, I put Heartland in really big letters because Amy Klobuchar is from the Heartland. Um, and on her website says she, she, you know, she, she does things with her heart. So that's very important. Um, She's a demon hunter. A lot of people don't know this. Um, <laughs> the reason they don't know it is because I made it up. But uh, I think it's fun. <laughs> I think it's just a fun thing to imagine. I have like a little... I just like... You know, when she drops out, which she will, I just like to imagine that she and I are going to hunt demons together. I think I think it would be good. I think she'd be good at it. She's like really... She's really mean. Just ruthless. That's important. She's... Exactly. You know, she'll throw you in jail even if you didn't do any crimes at all. Like, she really... For for life, she'll throw you in jail. So, like, what would she do to a demon? It'd be... Um, it'd be pretty pretty gross. Um, it'd be a fun TV show, though. Like, let's let's be real. Um, uh, I've, uh, let's see. In my list, I've got Silverware Versatility. Um, <laughs> she's already really good at child separation, so she won't need to implement a new policy. Um, just, just got that going. <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> um, she's this the most amazing bumper sticker I have ever seen, you guys. I'm freaking out about this bumper sticker. It's in her store. It says, this is a bumper sticker, and this is what the bumper sticker says. It says, I'm not going to go for things just because they sound good on a bumper sticker. <laughs> That's too meta. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? What does that even mean? That's an inception so dream. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining, like... Like in a being in a car, like following along behind a car that has that, it was just getting into a fatal accident because like I just can't I can't get beyond what that bumper sticker is. Um But it's really about it really speaks to her policy, which is that like she doesn't think anything good can happen, uh, which means that we won't ever be disappointed. Um, which, you know, is a positive in a way. Um but in terms of like what her actual stated policies are on her site, you know, it's funny how how Bernie Light her policies are and everybody's policies are, you know, strength in unions, you know, she wants, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, healthcare access for everybody. So through a public option, but at least like that's the language. And you wouldn't have seen that really 
until Bernie's platform, came, you know, Bernie's able to push his platform four years ago. Um, and she really tries to double down on her working class credentials. She says she's the granddaughter of an iron ore miner, the daughter of a newspaper man and a union teacher. So she's trying to emphasize that, you know, she comes from working people. Of course, she spent her career throwing children in jail for no reason and being a demon hunter. Uh, you know, team demon, probably. Um yeah, there's and there's another great thing on her site where she says, um, our nation must be governed not from chaos, but from opportunity. We must bridge the river of our divides and get to a higher plane in our politics. And I like that because she talks about bridges and planes. So, like, obviously, she's really into transport and would be, <laughs> you know, <laughs> she'll she'll do a lot of she'll do some good stuff with with getting more bridges and planes in this country. Um, yeah. So uh, that's those are the things about Amy. She. uh she wants things to be not better, but to keep existing. So um, that's pretty good. You can get a, you can get another T-shirt from besides bumper sticker. You get a t- um, uh, sweatshirt. Um, it says the word grit on it, and it defines the word grit. So you can wear that. Um, I don't know what she has to do with grit exactly. Um, I don't know what her plans are to actually help people are, other than to say that things can't happen and cannot be done. But you know, it's a she. She is a person who's out there speaking words. So I think you have to give her some credit. A ringing endorsement from. <laughs> <laughs> so she's out there. She's on two feet. She's saying words. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and and oh, I forgot one important thing. Uh, the New York Times thinks uh, she's going to win every every five days or so. They don't have any evidence for this, but they just say the Klobuchar surge is coming. I think they must be talking to my mom's annoying friend. I think they just like keep interviewing her, and that's that's like their their one source for the the club surge. I think like yeah, the the New York Times thing is is phenomenal, and I think that at this point, the reason the New York Times is like giving her so much coverage is because they they realized that fuck we we did this big rollout of our you know editorial endorsement. They chose Warren and Klobuchar, woke woke bays that Bitches. they are. Uh, yeah, just give it baddest. out for the bitches <laughs> and and then like those endorsements literally did nothing like like their polling numbers didn't like if anything they dropped after that <laughs> like so, just a just maybe like a blip yeah so maybe now she's like 3.1 to like 3.2 or something like that i'm 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 being dramatic but yeah like it, it there was no big new york times bump by any means but you know like like Lada said, she 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 does say words that that is important. But she uses more than words, right? She also uses objects, specifically objects that she can hurl at her staffers. <laughs> <Right? clears throat> and so I like that about her too. She has she has multiple forms of of communication. And so yeah, I mean like uh, you know Lida already mentioned this, but I guess you know it, it's kind of like doing the anti side for Klobuchar is like shooting fish in a barrel so i do want to want to give Lida a shout out for for bravely taking on the pro stance of klobuchar and and I yeah love her. I, mean, <laughs> right. I hope that well, came to, i just i genuinely love her and think she should be nowhere in her politics ever i mean loving her as like you know like a, a horny fetish and like you know <laughs> it's not the same as wanting her to be president though <laughs> no no she shouldn't she should not have anything to do with politics or Probably she shouldn't be around weapons either. The demon hunting thing might just be a fantasy. That is going to have to stay a fantasy. Yeah, we we were talking before the recording about the uh, uh, just horrifying um, development of 
people being horny for Klobuchar on Maine, and that's a that's a topic for uh, another episode. <laughs> but I would like to not touch that ever. That'd be fine. Don't invite me on that. <laughs> is that episode. A, was that a pun? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, please. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for the for the anti side, like I said, it's like it, it's pretty it's pretty standard. I think you know I'm not going to really say anything here that people haven't already heard. But yeah, I mean, I, I I did I did think that the section that Lida mentioned from Klobuchar's website is is kind of instructive, right? I mean, it so it reads in full, um, quote. As the granddaughter of an iron ore miner and the daughter of a union teacher and a union newspaper man, Amy will bring one clear but simple guide to the White House. When unions are strong, our country is strong. As president, lol, um, she'll stand up against <laughs> attempts to weaken our unions. That means achieving real labor law reform, ensuring free and fair union elections, protecting collective bargaining rights, rolling back right to work laws and making it easier and not harder for workers to join unions. Right. And I think this is this is very emblematic of what we were saying earlier, right, about like, you know, the persona that you can craft on your website um, and how, you know, yeah, it, it's hard to make your like website persona sound shitty. So, you know, if someone does, then that's that's not a good sign. But, you know, like we're going to include some links in the show that can kind of give you give folks more of a breakdown of kind of like the the proposed labor policies of these candidates and kind of the you know comparing that to their track record right and i think like like the description that klobuchar gives on her website right there's a lot of there's a lot of hot air there right there's a lot of good sounding stuff um but even like kind of the careful wording like rolling back right to work laws like what's to roll back get the fuck rid of them right to work is terrible right it it already kind of like reeks of this you know just uh you know fetishized centrist compromise thing which is which is like pretty much all klobuchar talks about whenever she's on the debate stage right is that you know, she is the kind of tough-minded boss who will get things done, who can work across the aisle, right? She was even bragging, like, this week that she could better maneuver and, and work with kind of the Trump-led Republican um, Party. And it's like, I don't want you to work with them. Like, they're terrible. They have been expressly terrible for workers. Like, Trump's administration has, has like, you know, just been devastating for workers and worker protections. And you have this candidate who's, who has never been polling, like, very high, kind of touting it as some sort of, like, you know, ultimate good that she's going to work with them um, on, on these sorts of issues. And I don't think that a lot of working people are really kind of buying that. Because I don't think she has a whole lot of kind of substance to really drive our faith that, um, A, that she's going to be proactive in protecting workers. Because in that description and on her website, it seems like a lot of nominal support for existing um, kind of labor policies or kind of existing sentiments about, like, unions are good, we should increase union membership. Um, but, like, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this later if you compare it to, 
to like say Bernie Sanders' website, like that thing is just chock full of um, kind of policy details on improving unions, a long track record of supporting worker strikes, and and a, the by far the longest list of union endorsements. Right, that sort of thing, you know, is I think is is really what lends weight and credibility to the type of like claims that that you know Klobuchar and others are making on their websites when it's just them crafting their own narrative and you know on top of that and on top of kind of the the lack of like any like significant um kind of evidence to suggest that she's going to take a really proactive pro-worker pro-union stance and and really kind of try to you know whip congress into passing legislation or take the initiative to to pass executive orders yada 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 Right. You know, I I think on top of that, we got to talk about the elephant in the room. Right. Which is how she is reported to have, you know, treated her workers over the years. Right. And and and, you know, I I, Sarah Jones wrote a really great article about this in in New York magazine. Right. Because I want to be careful here. Obviously, there is a double standard. Right. In terms of how we weigh up. Um, kind of like the the bossiness of you know women versus men, right? We saw a lot of this in 2016, right? You know there is a different standard to which you know women are held when it comes to like being a, a, a mean boss um, that that men aren't, right? Like I'm sure Trump is just is just a fucking terrible boss, right? But like people seem to love that, but you know that it doesn't kind of um you know elide the fact that like you know she still has a long track record of really horrifying treatment of her workers um and this is not just like some new thing that's been dredged up to kind of try to tank her uh candidacy um you know, this is th- these reports go back decades, right? You know, Lida, I think, already mentioned uh, Combgate, right, where we had a, an aide um, who was rushing to get on a flight to South Carolina with with Klobuchar in 2008. Uh, the aide, you know, bought her salad, brought it on the plane, somehow lost the utensils going through security. There were no utensils on the flight. And so, you know, Klobuchar just like berated the shit out of the staffer, um, pulled out a comb. She used that to eat the salad and then demanded that the staffer clean it. Right. I mean, there are just tons of reports of, um, you know, in her day to day office, um, Klobuchar just regularly berating and terrifying her staff to the point of tears. Um, she was reportedly, you know, thrown objects at her staff from binders to phones to even perhaps a stapler. Right. I mean, and you have staffers who try to refute this by saying, no, she didn't throw the binder. She just gesticulated wildly and a binder, just flew and hit someone in the face. <laughs> and so, so we can't. So perhaps we can't judge her, you know, too, too harshly. But like one of the things that really fucking gets me right is that you know when staffers would leave for new jobs there are two things right one Klobuchar like had this like totally like regressive um, policy that required staff to remain in her office for like three times the amount of any like paid leave that they had taken. Right, so if they take family leave, then they have to like then stay in her office for like three times the amount of time that they took that leave, 
Otherwise, they have to pay the office back for their leave. And then, you know, Klobuchar's office tried to say, oh, we we never actually did that. And we're taking that off, you know, our policy now. It's just like, well, yeah, but it was still there. You're right. It was still a force of intimidation for your workers while they were there. You didn't remove it, you know, until just now. Like, I don't buy that at all. And, you know, also Klobuchar would apparently call the new employers of staffers who were leaving for new jobs and complain about them and fuck up their applications. Right. And so, you know, these may seem like just kind of collections of, you know, anecdotes, but I think it really they really do speak to, you know, what we were talking about before. Like, how do you figure out, you know, who the what you're buying? Right. You know, obviously what you see on the website is going to be the best version of them. What sorts of evidence can you use to figure out if this candidate is actually going to be who they say they're going to be? And I think, you know, just like the way that people treat wait staff when, you know, they think no one's watching, the way you treat your own fucking staff and the way you do that repeatedly to the point that it just becomes common knowledge, that tells me that you have a, a sort of contempt um, for you know working people, for people who are beneath you, quote unquote, um, and and you know shit. So you want to elevate yourself to the presidency where you're going to suddenly see everyone that way. Everyone is beneath you. Like that doesn't give me much hope or much confidence that in fact she's going to maintain some sort of commitment to the dignity of working people when she can't even recognize the basic dignity of her own workers. Wow, that's really misogynist. I really, you know, you just don't respect the girl boss and what the girl boss has to do. (laughs) Girl bosses have no choice. They have to abuse people. They have to keep up with the men who abuse people. That's the only, the only thing that feminism is about is being every bit as horrible as men. That's what we want. That's what we're after. One of the reps on using your tough boss, as you know, that several stories have come out in the last week, high staff turnover in the Senate. What do you think is fair about that criticism and what have you learned from it? Well, first of all, I love my staff. Uh, I wouldn't be where I am and we wouldn't be able to pass all those bills and do all that work if we didn't have great staff. I am tough. I push people. That is true. But my point is, is that I have high expectations for myself, I have high expectations for the people that work for me, and I have high expectations for this country. All right, so um, now uh, I, need to, I need to go take, um, I need to go like wash my, my head out from my eyes out after reading so much about Klobuchar, and we're going to toss things over to Mel and Ash, who are going to break down uh, Pete, Pete Buttigieg. Okay, so um, there's really not too much redeemable about Pete. Um, I find his website to be jarringly difficult to get through. What is it with like campaign websites and being unable to really understand how these policies are laid out? It's extremely confusing. Um, I don't have a whole lot of good things to say. The dude um, has a singular focus, you know, spent his entire life campaigning for the presidency pretty much. One, there's exactly one thing on his website that I found really interesting that um, I think, uh, I'm not sure if this is a a policy that Bernie has also put forward, but there is a section of his website that talks about political representation. And it specifically talks about having true political representation for the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. And I think it's uh, it's worth noting that... um, 
I think his plan for DC is a little weird, but I do want to point out that um, it is a true statement that Puerto Rico and other U.S. territories should have immediate representation in the Electoral College. And if the people of Puerto Rico want statehood, they should be welcomed by the United States. I think that um, if that is something that I think that Puerto Rico as a territory of the U.S., the fact that they do not have political representation and yet are beholden to the policies often uh, that the U.S. enforces, particularly thinking of their absolute disaster after Hurricane Maria and then the subsequent earthquake. Um, I don't know if Bernie has a policy like this, but I think it is definitely a conversation that is worth having. Um, That is literally the only thing that I found on Pete's website that didn't make me cringe. So... Um, I'm not sure what you want to do with that. I think um, Pete as a candidate is its kind of like Amy. He's got a pulse. So that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a win, I guess. Um, I find a lot of, I'm going to, this is going to be a Pete bashing moment, honestly. Like the dude's policies make me cringe so hard. Um, his treatment of his staff makes me really uncomfortable. I think that uh, literally his entire resume was just so that he had a better chance at the presidency, which makes every single thing that he's ever done super hollow. And uh, how he ran uh, South Bend, Indiana, right, yep. um, was horrific, <laughs> you know, um, and there really wasn't much to, to say about that. Um, I would like to also say that... Um, I got nothing. I tried. I really tried. Um, <laughs> he does legit look like Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> nah. Animatronic Chuck E. Cheese in the White House. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Is that a horror movie? Uh, yes. Because it should be. Absolutely oh. should be a horror movie. If... Oh, it is. Oh. I don't know, man. Like, he's got he's got all these policies, and, you know, it, it's a lot of lip service. And um, it doesn't go far enough. And I find his healthcare policy to be odious, and people are going to die if that is how we restructure healthcare in the United States. So, Ash. <laughs> uh, so I really I, ha- I have a bone to pick with one of your positive comments, and that is you made the uh, quite frankly onerous claim that Pete Buttigieg has a pulse. I well, I completely <laughs> disagree <laughs> with that wild assertion. <laughs> uh, I, I, want, I want everyone to take a quiet moment of reflection and imagine uh, or think back to, if you will, that first moment where you encountered unbridled human suffering. Just think about the first time, maybe in elementary school, you got, you got absolutely roasted in front of the class. Maybe your puppy died. You know, you just think about that moment of pure suffering, bottle that and put that into the heart of any cursed doll. Annabelle's lost brother, (laughs) Slappy from the Goosebumps, it doesn't matter. Just stitch it right in there. And the thing that comes to life is Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg is what happens when Pinocchio does not wish to be a real boy. He wishes to be the executive arm of empire and corporate corruption. <laughs> when it comes, when it comes, you, you'd mentioned that Pete Buttigieg is completely hollow, and I agree, but that's because I doubt he's fully human. I'm pretty sure he was carved out of wood by some kind of mad toy maker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Not him. Hello, 
papá. How long's it been? Feels like forever. Who are your new friends? We're not really know him. Slappy, it's so nice to see you again. Did you miss me? Of course I missed you. <laughs> so what's the plan, friend? You must have brought me out for something fun. Terrorize the locals? Destroy the town? Let's get silly! And that's as far as as far as Pete goes on, a, on like a legitimate level. Uh, he, just just look at his record. He worked for the McKinsey Institute, which does nothing but balance the books of corporate corruption and empire. That's that's their job. And and he happily worked there for however long, even if the entire time he's just like, no, I was I was a paper boy. All I did was stock post-it notes or whatever. Like, yeah, that's, that's definitely not true. Uh, he didn't fix prices or anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he didn't, didn't fix bread prices at all. <laughs> That's ludicrous. Puppets don't need bread. Why would he be concerned with that? You've been on the front lines of corporate downsizing. You've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing. You've been on the front whoa, lines whoa, whoa. That's, that's, of, our, that's, of our misadventures. I'm sorry. That's... Of our misadventures in foreign policy. You've had direct experience of many of the things that make a lot of young people very angry about the way that this country uh, is operating right now. You don't seem to embody that anger. So the proposition that I've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing is just to get that out of the way. You worked um, for a company that was fixing bread prices. Uh, no. I worked for a consulting company that had a client that may have been involved in fixing, or was apparently in a scandal. I was not aware of the Canadian uh, bread pricing scandal until last night. But, like, if, if you look at his career in South Bend, like, all he did there was cover for openly white supremacist cops. And uh, there, there was this really awful program called 1,000 Homes in 1,000 Days, and during that uh, uh, bright, smiley thing, it was it was it was a uh, blight renewal program. And uh, if you're familiar with that awful fucking term, uh, all that really means is that uh, Pete Buttigieg oversaw the demolition of homes in predominantly black neighborhoods because they were community eyesores. Uh, this displaced people, this disrupted neighborhoods. Pete's been campaigning. I mean, he's not mayor anymore. He's the candidate formerly known as mayor. But while he was still mayor and on the campaign trail, he would not go back to his community to to answer people's uh, complaints, to answer their protests against him. And that kind of disrespect, that kind of gross negligence of the needs of the people you're supposed to represent, if he if he does that when he's mayor of of South Bend, Indiana, what do you think he's going to do when he's president of the United States, Pete? <laughs> so that's a so that's a big no on on Big Pete. Uh, I'm gathering. <laughs> he, he really just seems like one of those guys who uh, is barely keeping it together in terms of like keeping his anger in check. And like, oh, yeah. if, oh, yeah. if you if you piss him off just once, he'll like bomb your country. You know what I mean? Like, I just scary amount of candidates that are running for the Democratic nomination should be nowhere near the executive branch at all period we should not even be giving them the time of fucking day and pete is one of them probably top of the list honestly yeah yeah you can you can tell when uh when when you hit you know like one of his sore points just like the the intense rage bubbling underneath the surface starts to come out and uh 
Yeah, I mean, I, I thought I thought that was a, a great breakdown. And again, we're going to post links um, so you can follow up on some of this stuff. But yeah, look like Ash said, look at the work that Pete's done for McKinsey. Um, you know, look at the people that he's kind of taking his marching orders for. And we didn't even get to the wine cave, right? You know, but there's only so much. Right. There's only so much time the, in the day. Well, he's yeah, currently bleeding staff as well. Like, he's, yeah. there are people are exiting his campaign um, because there are fears that he is not necessarily lending any sort of ear to black voters and that his staff are consistently running up against. Um, I haven't read the New York Times article because I really don't like reading the New York Times, but, you know, there's just been consistent news about his campaign and sort of fracturing from the inside. Um, in a lot of different ways, because uh, clearly the face that he puts forward to the public is not how he's treating his uh, election campaign. And that's concerning, you know? I don't know. The people doing that fucking dance seem pretty happy. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, I was just going to say, we, did, we didn't see the death squad off camera forcing them to smile <laughs> as they did their little Pete jig. There's a definite dance of the damned vibe right. to that. The the Buddha jig, if you will. Um, <laughs> well, you know, on on that note, um, let's uh, let's let's jig on over to the next candidate. We got uh, Elizabeth Warren, the woman who was, you know, j- up until recently, you know, kind of surging in the polls. People thought that she was really going to kind of uh, oust uh, Bernie Sanders as kind of the progressive ticket. And so to kind of break down Elizabeth Warren, um, we got Brian giving us the pro side and we've got uh, Mel um, giving us the anti side. So, Brian, what do you got? So Elizabeth Warren is running a really just an absolutely phenomenal campaign for 2016. Her big thing is she's got these plans. Now, some of these plans like... The most recent one she put out about fighting disinformation um, around elections is hot garbage. Others of her plans, like the uh, a fair work week for America's part-time workers, is not. Like, for the most part, a lot of her plans that are focused primarily on labor law are really, really good. Like, she has the best labor program in the race except for Bernie Sanders. It's very much an evolutionary approach to, to labor law. It's looking to uh, tweak the pre-existing structures within the, within the National Labor Relations Act, potentially repealing chunks of Taft-Hartley, um, and making it much easier for workers to organize within the existing conventional frameworks. Likewise, like the Fair Work Week proposal is solid as well because it would guarantee scheduling. And these are ongoing organizing fights that have been successful in places like Philadelphia, but also fights in uh, Washington State that have been led by labor unions. Like, I I really don't, like, maybe this makes me a little bit of a, a, a squish, but I really don't think some of the criticisms of her have necessarily been fair as far as, like, that she was a former Republican or whatever, because she, like, realistically was. Like, in all seriousness, her politics are that of an Eisenhower Republican. But the thing is, like, she's also been a very consistent supporter of labor unions since she's been in public office. Like, the work that she's done at the CFPB is, you know, admirable and excellent, but it also marks out the limits of what her politics are. 
like she's looking to create new structures and basically conventional bodies within uh, a framework that is already breaking down. Like we're in the process of a constitutional crisis and like it's very tough to say that you need to create new sort of executive branch agencies when if you lose those agencies to the far right, they will just absolutely fucking chuck them into a wood chipper. Like if I don't know how familiar y'all are with what's going on at the EPA, but they're basically trying to destroy the union there. And they're basically trying to destroy the agency there under Trump. And, and that's sort of the limit of her politics. She's very much in sort of like, make sure we've got the right kind of people in the right kind of places and we can just sort of restore things to the way they were. Which is why I say, like, she's running a phenomenal campaign for 2016. Because if she had run this, in, like, before basically the entire, you know, fundamental structure of government on a federal level had, like, broken down, like, her proposals would probably hit much harder than they're going to in 2020. Uh, yeah, well, okay, um... You make fair points. You make fair points. Um, one thing that I will say is that immediately when you're directed to Warren, to, to, when you go to Warren's campaign page, she's got this giant, giant fundraising page redirect with this dire warning that they only have a few days left before the primaries, that they need to reach $3.5 million in donations. And the amount on their ticker is like satisfyingly short of the mark. I'm sorry. I just love it. Um, the, the main tagline on her website is we're building a grassroots movement to fight corruption head on and put power in the hands of the people like lol um, like here's one thing that really bothers me about some of her proposed plans right um, particularly surrounding protector protecting voter rights. So if you go to her campaign page and you see her talk about um, you know um, protecting voter rights she's talking a pretty good game here right. Here's a quote from her website. The right to vote is a fundamental right, and we will not let racist and corrupt politicians undermine it or our democracy, which is yes, like I agree. And the kicker is that like her proposed plans circle around the necessity of providing up-to-date voter machines to polling stations, incentivizing the push for higher voter turnout financially, um, doing away with the Electoral College, which is like, yes, I agree. You know, one person, one vote type plan. And like other useful um, measures like barring voter purges and introducing automatic voter registration, making Election Day a federal holiday so that people can turn out to vote instead of having to go to work. Like all this is super great, um, except for one thing. And I think this is like pivotal in, in talking about uh, many of the, the policies that she sort of puts forward. Right. Particularly with this um we're talking about restoring voting rights to disenfranchised felons, including those who are currently incarcerated, right? Um, and according to the Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition, Warren supports re restoration of voting rights for felons after they have completed their sentence. She does not support restoring voting rights to individuals while they are still incarcerated. And as far as I know, the conversation has not moved on from there, right? So um, if she's reconsidered this position, then I will happily eat my words. But like the concept is that voting rights are human rights, but only for a certain group of people, then the entire plan is just not worth the paper that it's written on, right? If you actually believe in one person, one vote, and you believe that voting in this republic, this democracy is a human right, then currently incarcerated individuals should have the ability to vote and they don't. 
And as we all know, our prison system here is uh, grossly overcrowded. Um, we have the highest population of incarcerated people in the world, right? And that makes up a large portion of individuals who should have some sort of say in how the country is run. And as of right now, she is not one of those people that supports that. And I think that's kind of telling about the rest of her policies, particularly surrounding like holding Wall Street accountable. She's she talks a huge game about how she's like she's worked to hold corporate CEOs accountable. She was, you know, um, one of the, the people who pushed back against uh, coddling the banks after the, the recession in 2008 and all this stuff. But like um, she also proudly calls herself a capitalist. So when you do that, you're like still willing to put profit over people. And for working class people, that means that people are going to fall through the cracks because the policies are always going to serve the interests of capital before they serve the interests of the human element within capitalism. You don't think capitalists are bad people? I'm a capitalist. Come on. I believe in markets. What I don't believe in is theft. What I don't believe in is cheating. That's where the difference is. I love what markets can do. I love what functioning economies can do. They are what make us rich. They are what create opportunity. But only fair markets. Markets with rules. Markets without rules is about the rich take it all. It's about the powerful get all of it. I also find that her student debt plan to be woefully, woefully uh, ineffective, right? Like. She's talking about canceling $50,000 in student loan debt for every person within uh, with a household income under $100,000. That counts me. I have close to $90,000 in student debt. That's le- like, it's barely over half of my own current student debt. It's either an all or nothing situation. You shouldn't, there should, seriously, all or nothing. Because $50,000 may help some of the, the most... Um, Affected individuals, people with lower debt um, that have defaulted on their loans because they went to a for-profit college and they didn't even get a degree, so they don't have the ability to work a good job um, that will help them pay that off. That's awesome. But there are also there's also a high percentage of individuals who have over $50,000 in student debt, and this is not going to make a dent because the interest rates are so high, right? And like, you know, no debt cancellation to people with household income above $250,000. If you're going to cancel it for one portion of the population, then this should be a universal thing, in my opinion. It's just, it doesn't go far enough. And it's cool that she was one of the first candidates, besides Bernie Sanders, to really talk about debt cancellation and provide a, a, a plan that people can look at. But I just, again, this is profit over people. This is exactly what I'm talking about because uh, student loan debt is a huge moneymaker for the United States government. And by not canceling all of it, she's ensuring that these these institutions are going to remain in place and that individuals are going to continue to fall through the cracks because the rest of the country is dealing with, you know, stagnating wages and um, reduced protections for workers. And it's just going to make the situation a little bit a little bit less, but still shitty. You know what I mean? Um, and then I also just want to draw attention to the fact that while her website has this super robust healthcare plan that is very much Medicare for all, is very much something that uh, fits in the same um, camp as Bernie Sanders, um, is very hopeful and talks about 
uh, how healthcare is a right and not a privilege. She has walked back that rhetoric in the last couple of months um, because she knows that is not a politically expedient position to take um, and has reformed her proposal, but somehow has not uh, updated her website um, and has talked uh, regularly about first it was I'm all in for Medicare for all. And then it was, well, kind of, you know, and now she's talking about like different ways to handle the transition period. And now she's talking about keeping a private option and like all these things that would muddy the waters like single payer now. What the hell? Again, you're either in or you're out. This middle ground, centrist, moderate, fucking politically expedient bullshit is not something that I'm interested in. And if you aren't willing to stand on that platform and say, fuck the haters, we're going to do it this way because people deserve to not be saddled with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt just so that they can go to the hospital and save their own lives. Like, think about it. 69,000 people died of the flu last year in the United States. 69,000 people. In the state of Nebraska, there were hundreds of people who died from the flu. These are perfectly healthy individuals who just didn't have fucking health insurance. So they didn't get a flu shot. Like, what the fuck? This should not be something that happens in our so-called developed country. That's absolutely ridiculous. And I think that anyone who does not support a single-payer system is actively condemning a huge portion of our country to uh, death by preventable illness. And that is unconscionable. Sorry. So try again, Liz. Like, seriously, man. Like, and I find it absolutely ridiculous that we continuously talk about breaking the glass ceiling. I do not want this to be the first female president. I don't. I don't think that that is representative of true feminism. And we haven't even gotten into Warren's uh, decades of lying about her heritage as a, a, quote, Native American. We haven't talked about how she refuses to apologize distinctly to the Cherokee Nation for completely co-opting their race for benefit to become the first, quote, woman of color at Harvard. Oh, my God. Ugh. Like, come on. Come on. Like, this shit's stupid. And maybe most satisfyingly, she tried to pull Bernie Sanders into the most ridiculous high school drama bullshit, and it backfired spectacularly. Like, you could probably try trace the trajectory of her polling numbers from the moment that she tried that craven bullshit to where she's at now, which is to say she's not going to win a primary. Fuck her. I could go on forever. I'm not going to, though. Oh, Warren needs to just step down. I'm sorry. Sorry. Can't do it. I'm not going to have another Hillary Clinton situation because that was god awful. And I don't think that she should be anywhere near the executive office. I maybe that's just because I'm a staunch anti capitalist. Maybe I'm just a fucking human being. But like, I just don't think that she has truly the interests of any of the American people who aren't in a high tax bracket in mind with any of these policies. She would probably engineer back doors into every single one of them. And that's just not, that's not, that is not the future that this country needs or deserves. So, man, Brian's a real piece of shit for defending Warren. Don't you guys agree? <laughs> <laughs> Max, where do you live? <laughs> Und <laughs> undisclosed. Undisclosed location. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was great. That was great, y'all. Thank you so much for that. Um, and and yeah, Brian, you did a, an incredible um, 
incredible job approaching that in good faith even though i know that <laughs> yeah, you got a lot of you got a lot of problems with warren for sure um so, like a yeah. cheese grater on my gums yeah so i mean again like like with lida taking the bullet for klobuchar Jen, what and, are you talking about i love amy klobuchar love her <laughs> <laughs> we probably should have had jaya on here to to, to stand klobuchar I feel like Jaya, like, during this recording, tweeted something horny about Klobuchar. <laughs> she absolutely did. <laughs> Shout out to Jaya. <laughs> so, um, something about getting spanked with a binder or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so, you know, let's take a, let's take a little break. Uh, to remember the ones that we have lost, <laughs> to 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 pay our <laughs> respects to the the great white hopes of the media and political establishment, uh, who were at one time held up as you know the the potential saviors of the Democratic Party, the political future of America, uh, and who are now you know. Uh, hanging out in a farm upstate <laughs> so i wanted to uh wonder, wondering if we could uh we <laughs> wondering if we could if we could go around and pay our respects if any if any of y'all have uh kind of any any words any reflections on um on the comrades we lost along the way i'm pouring out a dwarf of white wine for <laughs> <laughs> At least her book tour is still going well. I hear that when she dropped out, she just turned into a beam of light. Yeah, probably. <laughs> when she came to Omaha to campaign, she stopped off at our uh, like infamous magic store to do uh, a speech and to promote her book. Did she do any magic in the magic no, store? No, no. This is like, I'm talking like pagan store, like metaphysical store. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, but did she like, did she like pick up a crystal and like do some magic in the store? No, I didn't get a chance to go to that one, but there was definitely a table that was stacked full of her books and um, a lot of really interesting, what looked like offerings to the goddess Marianne. So it was great. It was, Ash and I walked into that and we were like, oh my God, this is happening. <laughs> Holy shit. Um, yeah, it was it was uh, fascinating. It was great. Pour one out for Marianne. Yeah. Um, I would like to say, for better O'Rourke, if you can't stand for anything, then you must stand on everything. <laughs> like, low-key, miss seeing his shoes parked on any stationary object. Cafe counter, on it. Minivan hood, on it. Overall, oval office desk, probably would have been on it. I mean, I also love that he had this, like, Meteoric rise in popularity, like Barack Obama with a nice, what was it, Vanity Fair spree, spread or whatever. Um, and then he just somehow managed to just completely bungle it in less than a year. Like, chef's kiss. Beautiful. Beautiful. Like, I hear he's just despondent, posting on Instagram, wearing MAGA hats, and growing a beard these days. Like, I suppose when you get bullied online so hard that you quit the presidential race, like, that's your only course of action. So, sorry, Beto. Killer Kick, rebrand, like, though. <laughs> yeah, kick, kick flip a little harder next time. Jesus. <laughs> I, I I gotta say, I kind of miss, and I know this is wrong, but she had a kind of, she had a really weird energy. I feel like, like, obviously Marianne has extremely weird energy. Obviously Beto is, like, sort of adorable. But, like, Kamala is, like, is, like, evil in a really, like, 
she, it was funny that like her you know her supporters are like you know queen this and queen that because she did have like queen energy but like like an ancien regime like or like belgian congo <laughs> queen like somebody like somebody who like like yeah yes yes let's cut off all their hands like and and I kind of it was kind of fun and her her terrible army of like terrifying uh, online people who are still around who are trying to say, like, Bernie's a cop, that's, like, their new thing. I think, you know, like, yeah, they're horrible and, and a little terrifying, but they're kind of cute. It's like, I don't know, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh... I, I, I have no doubt that it, had she, had she won, there, you know, she'd just throw all of us in jail. But, but in, you know, in, in, in a fun way. <laughs> I mean, honestly, though, I do love that near the end of her campaign, they either fired their campaign staff or all of them quit or resigned in protest because they were just not getting paid. Like, honestly, it was beautiful <laughs> to see that they were like bleeding staff right near the end because people are like jumping ship left and right. They know it's not going to go anywhere. Just beautiful. It's hard to be that evil. And so it's like, it's like impressive. Like so evil that you're not paying your campaign staff and you're a senator. Like you're not like like a weird. You're not like a Marianne. Like if Marianne didn't pay her campaign staff, like fine, whatever. She's an alien. It's okay. But yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> well, wasn't it like she she like hired people and made them move from D.C. to Baltimore and then they worked for her for like two weeks and then she laid them all off. So <laughs> it's so evil. <laughs> like, right. I, I get Lada's point. It's like, yeah, you can't you can't buy that kind of evil. Right. <laughs> you know, I've I've come around to this. This is like like I love Emperor Palpatine because he's always smiling and having a good time, and I could just imagine Kamala being like, ha, you're all screwed. <laughs> Kamala is also also a really good object lesson uh, about the danger of the children of Marxist professors and Zudajajakans, so Marx that out as well. Like, basically, don't trust red diaper babies unless they are babies. So I'm still crafting this tweet in my head, but um, I, <laughs> I want to do like a before and after picture, right? Of like, um, you know, Buttigieg and his parents or Kamala and her parents and just be like, this is what professors look like before and after tenure. <laughs> right? uh, <see>. <laughs> 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 every, every fucking Marxist professor becomes Pete fucking Buttigieg once they get tenure. <laughs> so, uh, but stay, stay tuned for that tweet. Speaking of disappointing children, Ash, do you want to pour one out? <laughs> I would love to. Uh, as the as the uh, president and chief of the Michael Bennett Cryptid Research Foundation, I would like to pour one out for a candidate that we have not proven definitively if he ex ever existed or not yet. Uh, we have rumors that he's still running, uh, but I have recently received reports that he was seen uh, with glowing red eyes hovering above the nuclear reactors in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Uh, if anyone has photographs, video, or maybe even an EVP of Michael Bennett, don't send it to Ghost Chasers. Send that stuff to me. <laughs> Outstanding. Mo yeah, Mothman Bennett. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of going, I guess I'm going the Ash direction. Like, I, I originally wanted to pour one out for my man, Cory Booker, and, and T-Bone, his writing mate, T-Bone. <laughs> um, just, just for being just, like, the most, like, insatiable goober like he's just <laughs> such a doof <laughs> like like you know every time i see his face i'm just like get out of here like you big doof but like but then something changed my mind 
I was looking at kind of the New York Times like rundown of like of the candidates that we lost and I came across this fantastic like two sentence description of John Hickenlooper. <laughs> and so I'm throwing it in for I'm throwing it in for the loop. So the New York Times reads <laughs> Hickenlooper's obituary reads Mr. Hickenlooper was the first of four candidates to exit the race in August. A moderate with a pen- <laughs> a moderate with a penchant for whimsy. Mr. Hickenlooper never missed an opportunity to fetch a banjo and strum, even and especially during grueling stretches of his campaign. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> that is awesome. So you strum that yeah, you strum that banjo, Hickenlooper. Don't let anyone stop you. <laughs> you know, I was in Colorado when he was what? Governor? Was he governor of Colorado? Um Sure. I can't remember what, what <laughs> position he held. I really can't. Yes, he was. He's the former governor of Colorado. Yeah, thank right. you. Um, and I just remember everyone in Colorado constantly having a complaint about whatever the fuck was going on with Hickenlooper. So I'm glad he's not in the race anymore. <laughs> I'm glad he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of spanking, inappropriate, <laughs> yeah, uh, we got we got Uncle Touchy himself, Joe Biden, um, and we got Ash bravely um, taking sympathy with the devil, um, and Brian's going to be doing the anti. So, uh, Ash, take it away. I tried. Lord knows I tried. I, I went through this man's history looking for maybe one or two good things he ever did. And I couldn't find so much as him, uh, you know, helping an old lady cross the street. You sound like the angel. No, you sound like the angel, like when he gets to heaven and he's like going to be kicked out down to hell. <laughs> that's that's what the angel will say. That's brutal, dude. Joe, you're messing up my quota. <laughs> but in, in in all seriousness, uh, we're, we're talking about a lot of politicians today that have... Uh, complicated histories to say the least right that that have had uh stances that we could say have not benefited uh, the working people of america um but to put joe biden next to literally any of them is a crime to these people and that says a lot based on what i said about uh pete Buttigieg. uh joe joe biden supported the war in iraq like okay i'm not gonna but I will, I will find one good thing to defend about Joe Biden, and that's to stop looking at him as a politician and start looking at him as an old man. Uh, Joe, so, something, something's not right. I'm not, I'm not a physician. I have no, I have no medical accolades of which to speak. But uh, when, when you're presidential candidate, when you're hopeful, when, when the guy who's, uh, you know, depending on what poll we're looking at, is either in first place or second place, or it's a really heated race. Um, when when he starts talking and he just starts rambling about about like the the kids at the pool when he was a lifeguard they would stroke the leg the hair on his legs and he used to know a cockroach and then he got into a knife fight with a with a with a hoodlum named popsicle and it's just like i'm i'm legitimate popcorn right was it popcorn it was some folksy folksy nonsense is what popcorn. it was <laughs> it was corn pop <laughs> there we go Ah, uh, there we go. <laughs> but we, what we what we have here is is the democratic machinery, the apparatus that wants to sustain these corporate interests, trotting out an old man who is literally bleeding from the eyes when he's on the debate stage. 
people people uh, concern troll Bernie's health because he just recently had a trip to the hospital. But Bernie's never bled from his eyes, and as far as I can tell, he's corpus mentis when he speaks. Joe Joe Biden Joe Biden is not, and this this is this is disgusting that that the Democrats as as a party would be like this is our final chance to hold power. We need we need to have a necromancer sustain this man's life so he can sniff the hair of of eight year old girls for another couple of years. <laughs> like uh, I was telling Joe that- Biden Joe I- Biden doesn't. Oh yeah. No, I was telling Max yesterday that like Joe Biden is being held together by duct tape and anti-stroke meds. Like that's pretty much all that's keeping him up <laughs> yes. right like at this point. That's it. I'm not it's like it's like Mr. Burns. It's all the diseases at once are trying to kill him so none of them can get the job done. <laughs> and like Ash, you're fucking taking all of my shit. I'm sorry. I tried. But but the one the one good thing I will say is that I I pity him. I pity this old man. He's, he's being denied a basic level of human care that even the worst of, of our species, even the worst examples of humanity, uh, deserves. And, and that is the ability to redeem himself from the horrible things he's done. He shouldn't be running for president. He should be uh, walking around the streets of Fallujah with a broom and a little dustbin sweeping up the shrapnel that he is directly responsible for. That's my nice thing about Joe. You should give eulogies. Yes. <laughs> Eulogies to war criminals. <laughs> Give the worst eulogies. So, there's a lot of things you can say about Joe Biden. And, like, while we were literally recording this, Bo Erickson of CBS, who um, entered sort of the discourse the last time because Joe Biden freaked out at him and started going, why, 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 why? Like, it got, like... Erickson asked Biden several times about his record on Social Security, and Biden quite literally, rather than answering the question, like handed a pamphlet to to Erickson while we were recording this. Like, leave aside Biden's like longstanding and visceral support for cutting Social Security and Medicare entitlements. Leave aside his support for the crime bill and his use of like the super predator rhetoric that Clinton used leave aside his constant water carrying for the banks and other various uh, corporations that domicile themselves in the state of Delaware leave aside his support for the Iraq war, his unrepentant support for the Iraq war and leave aside Basically, all of the sort of, like, increasingly naked graft that, like, is sort of circulating around him, focused mostly around his just, like, in all seriousness, like, Hunter Biden is is basically the platonic form of a fail son. (laughs) Like, leave aside all of these things, plus Biden's... um, Inability to keep his hands to himself, particularly when it uh, involves women. Like, what you have is somebody who is very clearly, like, not fit to actually stand up, like, like on just a bloodless, electoral, like, okay, can this person go nose-to-nose with Trump at a debate? Like, as Ash pointed out, like, he started bleeding from the eye when he got asked about climate change. 
when a local Iowa sex pest in the activist community challenged him about um, climate change and how he was supporting Steyer, like, quite literally, Biden, like, started messing with the guy's jacket and had a meltdown. Like, every single time Biden gets challenged by the press from the left, he, he essentially freaks out. He literally can't handle it. Once you start mixing in, like, Biden's record, like, here's a good question. Why is Hunter Biden, why did Hunter Biden end up on Amtrak's board of directors? Uh, like, he's not an expert on transit by any stretch of the imagination. He's, he doesn't have any advanced knowledge of transit. So, like, why is he on the board of directors except for Joe Biden, you know, famously rode a ton of Amtrak. Everything about Biden, like, when you look at the policies on his page, you can see broken promises. Like, I, I because I'm a union organizer, I focus on labor stuff, uh, like, probably to an unhealthy amount. But when I take a look at his labor platform, it reminds me a ton of the Employee Free Choice Act, which the Obama-Biden administration did sweet fuck all nothing to get through the Congress when they had control of both. And most of the Democratic caucus refused to eat, like, they didn't even, like, bring it to a full floor vote. They didn't even let it get fucking, like, even get close to passage. Biden is, like, like the last guttering death rattle of, of, the, of the third way, like, centrist establishment. At least, like, th- like two of the candidates that we've gone in depth here, if they were even, if he was even remotely fit for purpose, they wouldn't have even had a chance. Buttigieg would have never been able to run, and Klobuchar wouldn't have been able to run. Like, if Biden actually, like, was, like, of sound mind and body, they wouldn't have even had a shot. And we'd be talking about a three-way race at this point. But because... Biden is genuinely, like, like falling apart at the seams. Like, literally every week, he does something that's deeply embarrassing, like chew on his wife's fucking fingers in the middle of a speech. And by the way, you know, I sit on the stand, and it get hot. I got a lot of, I got hairy legs that turn, that, 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 that turn uh, um, blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down so it was straight and then watch the hair come back up again. They'd look at it. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap. And I've loved kids jumping on my lap. Like what ends, like what happens if like they put him on a stage with Trump and he like starts sundowning the way he has during previous debates. I mean, funny to see them sundown together. And by funny, I mean, it would be just really horrifying. Yeah, I mean, like, at, at that point, you're just, like, you, you switch from whiskey to Everclear. And you... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm going right for the nail polish remover. <laughs> so, Biden literally, like, will never be president. And I, I can say this, like, and, and to quote uh, uh, Barack Obama, Joe, you don't have to do this. <laughs> So you you reminded me actually of an actual positive thing I have to say about Joe Biden and not 
something uh, that's just like uh, pure poison. <laughs> but uh, Utah Phillips, uh, one of the great bards of the IWW, in the preface to the song, We Have Fed You All for a Thousand Years, said that in the, in the early days of the American labor movement, the bosses hated you. They openly hated you. They mocked you. They wanted you to die. But today, the boss is your friend. Come on into my office. You can talk to me about anything. My door is always open. We're a family here. And it's all a lie. They still hate you. But they've taken away the privilege to hate them back. Joe Biden allows us to openly hate him. He openly hates us, and he doesn't care. And that's kind of refreshing in a way. That, that he's, he's totally masked off. He's like, I don't care about student loan debt. I don't care about your health. I don't care about social security. You can all go die. And then we're like, oh, we hate you. I can, I'm openly allowed to hate you again. Unlike with uh, the other candidates like Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg, where they cloak everything and they make it mysterious. Joe Biden's open. And that's, that's a positive. That's a plus. It's a plus. If you don't like it, go vote for someone else. I'll be dead soon. Right. He does stump for Bernie very well, I must say. Yeah, I think along with uh, Lida's comment about Kamala, the, those might be the two most like backhanded compliments I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> um, you know, and and Brian, like I guess to kind of pick up on Ash's point real quick before we move on to the final candidate, you know, I think Biden, you know, gives like a, a great example of something that a lot of listeners have asked about, right? Asked how to navigate, right? And I know that this is this is very much your territory, but like, I guess if you if you had kind of like a few quick thoughts, like what would you say to to folks who see like you know the fact that the iron workers endorsed Biden, right? I mean, I'll I'll talk about the union endorsements that um, Bernie has gotten, and obviously every union endorsement is a coveted one. But like, how should how should like working people who are watching this all play out like interpret something like the iron workers endorsing Joe Biden? So this gets into a little bit of complicated labor politics. Um, like the trades, the building trades of which the iron workers are a part of, they tend to skew conservative. And I mean that in a little C sense because their politics are the craft unions and their politics are and have been sort of, um, I'm trying to figure out a way to do this without taking 15 minutes and explaining the, basis of craft unionism and how it's related to the medieval guild system. And I'm just going to skip over that. Like what I can tell you is like, if you're looking to organize people whose unions have endorsed somebody else, like I would quite literally just point to, to Sanders support for ending like at will employment. I can't even begin to tell you like if, if you got rid of at will employment, if you required just cause employment across the entire workforce, that would be a quantum leap for the ability for workers to organize because now the boss actually has to show like when they're firing you during an organizing drive, they have to show just cause. Whereas now the burden of proof is you have to prove that they did it for an illegal reason. Like as far as like a lot of this is just basic issue organizing. Like if you've got people who are receptive to these folks, talk to them. Say like, okay, what matters to you? What are you looking for out of a president? What kind of policies do you want to see implemented? Like that is what's going to get people to take action and, and do things. Sanders' big endorsement, and I actually like this is, don't sleep on this endorsement, even though they're a mid-sized union. The American Postal Workers Union endorsement is massive because 
they are quite literally the only union I can think of that has members in literally every county in the country. So as like, like it, it really comes down to finding out what people care about and convincing them that Sanders is a way to give them that thing they care about. Hell yeah. Well, I mean, that seems like as perfect a note as any to round the final corner and uh, go into talking about Papa Bernie, who, um, as of right now, you know, is he's, he's surging at the right moment. And, you know, it, it is suddenly seeming like an actual possibility that he could win one, if not both, of uh, the first two primaries. And so, you know, uh, the the rest of the panelists were um, gracious and, and, and caring enough to, to let me take the pro-Bernie stance, and I'll try to kind of do do justice to that. Um, and then our, our dearest uh, Lida will um, kind of pour some, pour some cold water over us and, and give the anti-Bernie stance. So... You know, again, like with Klobuchar, right, I think there's a lot here that, you know, is not going to be new to, to anyone listening, right? But I but I want to try to kind of synthesize it and, and hopefully in contrast with the other candidates that we've talked about, right, you can hopefully you can see, right, just like how unequal, right, this kind of comparison is, right? Like how, you know, just far and away, you know, except compared to maybe say like Warren, you know, Bernie really is on the labor side, right? And in part because of his history, in part because of his um, policy proposals, but also in part because his political message is expressly devoted to harnessing the um, political power of working people. He is trying, you know, from from day one in 2016, he's been pushing this message that it's not me, it's us, that people, you know, need to get involved in the political process. His whole gambit is to try to bring in, um, bring voters into the political process who normally stay home because this system has shown us time and again that it has nothing for them or that it's not going to listen to them. Right. So his big bet, right, is to bring this large, disaffected, working class population, the most diverse class in this country, into the political process and to be part of a movement. It is movement politics versus, you know, technocratic politics. And that, again, is it's so baked into Bernie's message that it's not going to be new to anyone here. But I do think that, you know, even just on the surface, that type of messaging really signals a type of politics that explains why, you know, all of us are are more, you know, partial to that than, you know, to, to the other options that are currently on the table, right? Because I, I personally do think that that's the only way that things are going to change, right? If you do harness the kind of creativity and power and brilliance of the working class and bring that power to bear on the, the political machine, to pressure the political machine to do what it so desperately does not want it to do, right? We know that, you know, to get that machine to, to do, to bend to the will of working people and to actually represent our interests, we can't just rely on, like, the good negotiating skills of an Amy Klobuchar, right? Or just, like, the trust me 
um, kind of confidence of a Joe Biden, right? We want to see kind of substantive proof that a this person that we're electing is going to fight, and that b that they are you know going to call upon us to be part of that fight. And I think that's really kind of the vein in which like my my kind of following comments are are going to be in, right? So I mean to to kind of start with with two big picture things. Um, and to build off what I was just saying, right, I think, again, baked into Bernie's political message is the um, this idea that we need to rework our entire political system in order to better represent the needs of working people. And this is where, you know, since 2016 and before Bernie has been kind of hammering home the message that we need to overhaul uh, campaign finance um we need campaign finance reform. We need to try to get money out of politics. We need to basically undo so many of the kind of um, undo so much of the damage that has been done to our electoral system that has more or less allowed billionaires and the donor class and the powerful interests that be to pretty much buy elections to be the only ones who can keep pace in an electoral system that costs so much money that it is like you know. That, that that working people cannot even access it, right? And so I think starting, you know, there with, like, Bernie's central message of overhauling the political system so that it no longer becomes the privileged territory of the rich and the powerful is one big point to make, right? You know, it is one point that filters down to everything else that, that he's about in that he, you know— he means what he says. He wants, you know, like this system to be more democratic, to reflect the democratic needs and wants of working people. And he's proposing kind of um, concrete ways for us to reshape this system so that it's not just the territory of the donor class. And, you know, I could I could talk about a number of different things, but I guess like, you know, one if we're talking about like stuff that Bernie said he, he might do on day one. You know, one of the biggest, uh, one of the like centerpieces of Bernie's platform is the Green New Deal, right? The Green New Deal, um, and we're gonna, I'm gonna link to stuff um, relevant to everything that we've been talking about, so you can dig into it a bit more. But I mean, the Green New Deal not only you know like is is a necessary and vital kind of move towards a more sustainable political economy that won't kill us and you know destroy the planet that we live on but in the process you know there was there's always going to be like um people in the the pundit class and and um the donor class who try to pit progressive um issues uh, against worker issues, right? So you try to, you see this all over the place where pundits are saying like the Green New Deal is a nice idea, but it's, you know, labor's not behind it or workers aren't behind it, right? And I think that that's really an unfair and ungenerous kind of uh, talking point. And, you know, if you look at just the way that it's been written, right, and written by, you know, really brilliant people, right? I mean, like, shout out to Rihanna Gunwright and the whole crew who put a lot of thought into this. Yeah, Rihanna's fucking awesome, right? But, like... Um, you know, like they, uh, the the Green New Deal um, calls for you know a government jobs guarantee, right? You know, like it, it this jobs for all program, the climate jobs guarantee, right? Kind of takes the the government in this in the vein of the New Deal as kind of the employer of last result, right? Because you see it on the debate stage, they talk about like, well, if we phase out coal jobs, then coal miners are going to be out of jobs. So what are you going to do for them? You could either lie to them like Trump did and say, well, no, we're going to bring coal back. Or you could say we're going to bake into our like 
quote unquote, just transition, a jobs guarantee so that you will have a way to live and work and provide for your family. And so that attention to the big, you know, we're always told that these are big pie in the sky ideas. I think it's important for listeners to focus on kind of the the meat and bones within these policy proposals that actually try to make sure that working people are going to be taken care of. Um, you know, Brian already mentioned this. I think it's it, it is important to point out that, you know, Bernie's getting a lot of love from from labor, right? And and as of today, you know, more than the more than two hundred thousand member American Postal Workers Union backed uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, Politico reported recently, and I'll quote here. They said, "Quote: Sanders has already racked up eleven labor endorsements, and I think that was before the Postal Union uh, Workers Union." So Sanders has already ranked up 11 labor endorsements, more than any of his Democratic rivals, most of which are from local, regional, and statewide unions. Five unions have come out for Biden, including three international or national unions, and three have gone for Warren, one of which is a national group that also co-endorsed Sanders. None has endorsed Pete Buttigieg. Um, you know, Bernie, in, in 2017, Bernie, um, you know, was given 100% pro-union rating by the AFL-CIO. He has a very long kind of section on um, his pro-labor stances on his website that, along with, yeah, like self-promoting flowery language, right, also gives concrete examples of the fact that, you know, he, he, is, he has stood by workers on strike. Um, you know, as this strike wave has kind of grown over the past couple years, right? Bernie stood there with the United Electrical Union workers in um, at, at Wabtec in the locomotive plant in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, we saw him on the picket line at UCLA. Um, he spoke in support of Rutgers professors with the AAUP AFT. Um, the the New York Nurses Association, he stood with the stop and shop workers. I think Warren did as well. So, I mean, he you know, he, he has kind of made a, a, a clear showing of kind of support for the rank and file. Um, and I, I do think that that matters. Right. And also, um, you know, in terms of some of his big promises, right, you know, Brian mentioned that Bernie wants to end at will employment. Um you know, one thing that really caught my eye is that Bernie said, um, you know, we are going to put pro-worker appointees on the National Labor Relations Board and the National Mediation Board. And I mean, again, I'll put links in the show notes for this, but the NLRB under Trump has has been terrible for workers. Right. You know, Trump has stocked it with a bunch of corporate pieces of shit, anti-worker pieces of shit, and, and it, it, they have turned the NLRB into just a battering ram that is being leveled again and again against worker rights. You know, it is literally a case of foxes running the hen house, and there's a great breakdown by the Economic Policy Institute that, that kind of really runs through all the damage the NLRB is, has been doing since um, kind of the Trump-led majority took over. But I mean, it, it covers everything from permitting employers to fire workers in retaliation of union activity, uh, undermining the right to strike, narrowing the scope of protections under the National Labor Relations Act, uh, turning a blind eye to worker misclassification, and they're even trying to fucking get like get rid of Scabby the Rat, right? And that's that is unforgivable. No. Yeah, they're trying. They, they they got it on the scabby? agenda. They want to get rid of <gasps> Scabby the Rat. No. Yeah. He's an icon. Yeah. So that there's a there's also an, a, another terrifying aspect to this because 
Right now, the NLRB is sitting just barely at quorum, and it's all three shitbag right-wingers. What's going to end up happening is they're going to lose quorum soon, and then nothing's going to happen. And because there's only going to be two people on the NLRB, the only thing worse than a right-wing-led NLRB is an NLRB that is not allowed to function, which is what happened under Bush and basically bound up any kind of organizing effort for years because of it. Like, so this, and it's, this is deliberate on the part of the administration. Yeah, it's, it is a shit show. It is, it is, we're going to be feeling these effects for a long time. And I think, you know, for, for Bernie and for every other candidate, right, for those listening, like really pay attention to what they plan to do about the NLRB, right? Because, you know, the, the, the damage that is being done there is, is um, catastrophic, honestly. And, and, you know, we'll link to this great piece that Alex uh, Fernandez Campbell wrote for Vox that gives a great breakdown of all the candidates' positions on uh, labor um, that, that uh, was written back in October. Um, but there they also, you know, talk about, you know, Bernie's Workplace Democracy Act, which is another centerpiece of his um, campaign. You know, Bernie has said that he wants to double union membership, which as Brian and everyone at StrikeWave, they just, they just put out a great kind of uh, analysis of, of this year's um, union density and membership numbers. And so we'll link to that as well. But, you know, Bernie Bernie wants to repeal right-to-work laws. Uh, he wants to penalize employers who fire workers for union organizing. Uh, he wants to restore union members' uh, freedom of speech, curb the power of union busters. Right? These, the so like along with kind of the big policy proposals like the Green New Deal, along with the fact that you know eliminating student debt would not would be just a huge boon for the economy because all of us are fucking crushed under student debt. Right? We are not you know able to buy a house. We are not able to kind of express that social and economic freedom that you know uh, generations before us were able to do. So that in itself is a very you, you can see how that connects to like a very kind of pro worker pro working class um kind of stance um you know so from the big policy proposals like the green new deal and and um called the college for all act down to you know the um workplace democracy act and and you know sanders has expressed um goals for um you know changing the the makeup of the nlrb you know, I, I, I just I really do think that, you know, far and away he has the best track record and he is the best candidate for working people. I wanted to take a moment um, to uh, just because my own personal in my own personal life, I am a caregiver for a family member who is constantly in and out of the hospital. And I really wanted to take a moment to really drive home the uh, benefit that. Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All and eliminating medical debt plans would have for a vast majority of Americans. As it stands right now, most Americans are locked into jobs because they have uh, moderately okay health care and they can't afford to pay for health care uh, and therefore stay at these jobs where they are experiencing humiliation where they're experiencing ennui, where they just aren't necessarily finding uh, a level of respect and dignity that they deserve, um, simply because there's a family member that needs to continuously see a doctor, or they have no other way of paying for prescriptions otherwise. And 
the Medicare for All um, plan is hands down something that this entire country would benefit from. And um, coming from um, personal experience of having conversations with this family member about whether or not to take an ambulance to the hospital because it would cost too much, and then having her end up in the ICU for over a week as a result of not getting care fast enough, it's incredibly important that we choose a candidate that is going to um, make sure that people stay alive. Um, and I just, I really think that it's important to also note that that this idea of eliminating medical debt would uh, pull money out of the hands of these absolutely uh, pernicious debt collectors who are um, being... It's ruinous to families, right? Where you may survive your trip to the hospital, but then you're saddled with $300,000 in debt that will take you a lifetime and more to pay off. And that um, a, a lot of bankruptcy system, a lot of the bankruptcy system does not necessarily allow for medical debt to be forgiven in any sort of bankruptcy process. I mean, honestly, it. Bernie Sanders is really the only candidate that's going to ensure that, at the very least, these conversations uh, make it into our legislature, and that um, if not, if not a totally single single payer system within the next four years, at least the conversation maintains itself. Because if we um, have any other candidate hit the rolls and we get through 2020 and Bernie is not president, it's just going to fall behind, and we're not going to have this conversation so prominent in the public discourse as we do now. Um, unless we, you know, I don't know, set the streets on fire. You know what I mean? And I think I think it's absolutely horrifying that you see just on one social media platform, the people who are burying their family members and then getting hospital bills, like, you know, five days later that are like $250,000 in medical bills and um, just a healthcare system that is completely broken and um, not regulated really at all. Each private insurance company does not necessarily have the same sort of coding system as the other. Hospitals are for profit at this point because they are now um, experiencing the incentive to not provide certain types of care knowing that the insurance company won't pay for it or, you know, the pharmaceutical company is paying doctors to prescribe certain medications. Um, it, there's just, it's a huge issue for me. Uh, I'm not, you know, one of those single issue voters, but this is one of the main reasons why Bernie Sanders uh, has my vote is because my family deserves to live a long life. And as it stands, we're fighting to make that uh, possible on a personal level. Um, trying to navigate a healthcare system that is inhumane, that is cruel, um, that is really not doing anything to uh, help the people who uh, desperately need it. And I find that to be disgusting, really. It's disgusting that we um, haven't really upended our current model of government that continues to, to push this aside and to let people fall through the cracks. Like 100 million Americans without insurance, come on. You know, like this kind of shit is absolutely ridiculous. And um, any decent human being with some modicum of a heart should look at that and say, this is the only candidate that we should push forward with, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I think 
I think that was that was beautifully put, and and you know more than anything, right? Beyond all the kind of um, policy prescriptions and so forth, I think that that you hit the nail on the head, Mel. Where I think I think what what really really speaks to um, kind of the promise of Bernie Sanders and what he what his candidacy and this movement mean to so many working people is just the basic. Um, premise that it doesn't have to be this way right that the the inhumane system that we have all been conditioned to accept as the only uh game in town right you know we are now seeing with our kind of collective power uh, a rising possibility that we could reject it that we could demand better because we deserve better all of us deserve better and you know i i wanted to add just one final footnote um because you you reminded me of, of um, kind of the the Medicare for all argument um, in comparison to say like Joe Biden right uh, on the worker question right people like Joe Biden are always going to labor unions and saying you know like you fought hard and negotiated your health care plans and we're going to make sure you keep those health care plans and you know I, I think it's it, the point's been made many times. Um, by many of us here, I know I've I've said it many times on this show. Like, yeah, unions do fight hard for their like healthcare benefits. But imagine what they could be bargaining for if their healthcare was universally taken care of for all of us. Imagine if work if employers did not have that giant um, axe that they could hold over your head to keep you working at your job because if you leave, you're gonna lose your fucking healthcare. If we had Medicare for all and employers no longer had that card to play they no longer had that just truly terrifying power that so many employers have over the lives and health of their workers right then imagine like what we could be demanding we could be demanding more as as bernie has proposed to have more workers themselves represented on um and of the boards of, of companies, more kind of democratic control over the means of production, yada, yada, yada. And so that's that that goes to the point of trying to see how these big uh, policy proposals fit into a broader kind of vision of social and economic justice. But um, OK, sorry, Lida, uh, it's all it's all yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. OK, I'm just going to follow that. That's great. Yeah, I'm just going to be able to follow that with some jokes. That's, that's something I can definitely do. All this extremely like important and serious conversation about like what we need as a society and, and healthcare. And yeah, I'm just gonna make some dumb jokes. Um, uh, actually, I so beyond the dumb jokes, I do have one actual serious con for Bernie. So one thing that is worth discussing. Um, so there is there's been a lot of really dumb opposition research on him, and most of it's just it's just crap. It's just meaningless stuff. There is one thing that I saw, and I saw it brought up more in 2016 than I've seen now, but it's actually, I think, an important story and it's worth talking about. Um, and the story is that in 1998, this is back when he was just a congressman from Vermont, he co-sponsored this bill, and it was a bill to dump toxic waste from nuclear sites in Maine and Vermont and to dump it in into a working-class uh, town in Texas. Uh, it's a town called Sierra Blanca. That's the majority Latino. And... So this is kind of this is kind of a weird story because it's pretty outside what you think Bernie is normally about. He's always been somebody who's cared a lot about the working class. This is his working class town, um, and it's it's interesting to look into it because importantly, this the toxic waste dump didn't end up happening in this town, um, and ended up happening elsewhere. 
But it, and the town itself is not named in the bill, but at, at the time it was really understood that the, the toxic waste was going to go to Sierra Blanca. Actually, because it was such a poor town, the people there were there were people there who wanted it because it would have been weirdly enough a job creator because you could you know cleaning up the um, you know cleaning up and guarding the site. But it obviously just like the risk of spills and environmental contamination was so bad. Um, but what makes the story kind of like upsetting and a little gross is that. Um, a bunch of activists, environmental activists from the area, um, bothered Bernie about it, and they said, "Why are you, why are you co-sponsoring this bill?" And he responded in a kind of a shitty way. Um, he said, "My position is unchanged, and you're not going to like it." Um, they asked him if he was going to visit the site in Sierra Blanca, and he said, "Absolutely not. I'm going to be running for re-election in the state of Vermont." So that is actually kind of a shitty thing for him to have done. And even though it ended up the waste ended up going somewhere else. It's kind of crappy. And so it's how do we take this story and square it with the rest of his career? You know, this is true, I think, just to people in general, that a lot of time people's like best qualities are also a little bit their worst qualities. So like one of Bernie's best qualities is he's very stubborn. And when he sets his mind to something, he does it. And that's great, except when once in a while where he gets his mind set on something that isn't the best idea. And... You know, it has happened before, and, and it's, everybody's like this. I think the idea, there's, there's an idea that Bernie's haters have that, that he's surrounded by a cult of personality, which I don't think is true in the slightest. But I think it is true to an extent that we're so eager to see him become elected that we might be a little more defensive than we should be and maybe not willing to push. Um, when this story comes up again, because it probably will, I think it's important that we say, yeah, this was crappy. This was a ba- crappy thing from Dunn, and he should probably explain what his, his rationale was for the time. Um, because one of the accusations that's really dogged him, and it's, I don't think it was really true in 2016, and I don't think it's true now, but the, the accusation is that he has a, a race problem and or a gender problem or whatever. And a lot of the time it's just because he didn't use the typical liberal language that you're supposed to use about things, and it's just, you know, these sort of like, you know, microscopic microaggressions where you have to really like dig down and and find something he said that's offensive. You know, it's like, oh, oh, he said or instead of and. It's, you know, it's really as basic as that. But it does kind of matter how you talk. It matters how you how you speak to people. It matters w- what you prioritize. And it could be back in 1998, he didn't prioritize these things. And he didn't, you know, he was thinking about Vermont. And he wasn't thinking about a poor Latinx community in Texas. And he should have been. He should have been thinking about everything. Um. You know, it's we have to continue to push him on things. He was late on a good immigration policy. He came up with a with the best one, but he was late, and that that is kind of important. We, and it has to be. We have to be clear that like the, these things are priorities, like you, that that it's not going to be because, and partly because his campaign has been glommed onto by a few. You're seeing it more and more. It's really creepy by by some right wing populists. People who are like really interested in like economic populism, but they they don't want social justice, and uh, he's not responsible for those people. That's not how stuff works. But it is worth, I think, being careful just to make sure that those people don't get to be the ones who push him. That it doesn't get pushed into a white working class movement. And I don't think that's likely. He has this really broad base of support from lots and lots of people. But it is something to think about, and I think just to be careful about. Um. Yeah, that's what I've got. Um, dumb jokes. Uh, he threatened to kill Sadie Doyle's baby. 
I saw that on the internet. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Lida, Lida, after that, Lida just like pulls up the cord. She's like, hey, who here's from Ohio? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I, I, I think most of the Bernie bro shit is just shit. It's just nothing. It's, it's, it's a non-story. Everybody's online fans are annoying because people online are annoying. But I think as we are pushing him, as we are pushing Bernie, if he wins towards implementing the policies that we want we have to be careful of the people who are going to try to push him in directions that we don't want because all kinds of people one can glom onto populism and all kinds of people come lusting after power so just be careful still vote for the thing you brought up about sierra blanco like i know somebody who's like absolutely one of the toughest like repro justice hard asses from from texas that's how the like fighting against Sierra Blanco is how they got involved with politics. Mm -hmm. And that is the main reason why she's not, she didn't support Sanders in 2016. And it's the main reason why she doesn't support Sanders now. Yeah. Like this is somebody who would naturally be very attracted to the politics and the policies he's pushing. But because of that issue, it's really hard for her to get behind him. Now she's going to vote for him if he's the nominee because she's not a piece of shit. But it's it is a concern. Yeah, I do want somebody to bring it up to him again, and I do want to hear a good answer. And even if the answer is just "I screwed up," that would be a legitimate response. But something something better than the very dismissive response he gave those activists at the time would be really good. Well, and I mean, I think I think it comes back to kind of what we started with, right? It, it sort of brings us perfectly back to kind of the opening framing thoughts that that we gave um you know in the introduction where you know we 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 made the point i think we were all in agreement that like yeah like you know no candidate ever can or should be right the end all be all of our political movement of you know our it, they should not be the only receptacle of our political hopes and our political energies right you know it's going to take a lifetime and it's going to take all of us and you know i think more than anything bernie sanders provides um an opening of possibility for us to finally you know not only imagine but to realize right you know the 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 things that we deserve right the society that we deserve the world that we deserve to live in and the kinds of people that we deserve to be when we are not, you know, hampered by, you know, just like vicious, um, predatory, you know, like uh, systems of debt, you know, militarism and and profit hungry pieces of shit who are looking to exploit, you know, like every human need for their own gain at the expense of our collective well-being, right? Opening up that possibility at the level of the presidency. Right. I think is a it, it creates kind of a, a valve for the for us to pour more of our demands and to push harder. And I think, you know, like Lida said uh, so well, right, you know, that that means, you know, pushing even pushing Bernie. Right. Because he's going to face, you know, like not only in the election, but if he somehow gets elected president. Right? The, the establishment is still going to fucking be there. And I think that's why we, you know, the the 
voting you know electorate the working class base that he's appealing to like we are his insurance policy that's why he's like trying to send this message that you know you're going to need uh you know people power to pressure the system into doing what it fundamentally does not want to do and on a day-to-day basis you know bernie himself and his cabinet are going to get sucked towards that kind of institutional entropy and it's going to be on us both at the kind of level of the presidency but at the local level at the level of our labor unions our tenant unions and so on and so forth to really keep driving that ball forward and you know y'all i i I cannot thank you enough for taking all this time to share your brilliant thoughts and perspectives on you know this, this this election and these candidates and, you know, by way of rounding out, I guess I just wanted to kind of uh, go around and see if you had kind of any any final thoughts. Yeah, Andrew Yang is a crypto fascist. <laughs> Checks out. Clearly. No, seriously, out. seriously. Legion of builders and destroyers. And he wants to, like anybody who overdosed on opiates, he wants a mandatory detention period of like five days. Andrew Yang is a crypto fascist and he's supported by the worst labor leader of the past 40 years, Andy, Andy Stern from late of SEIU. So. I think Tulsi Gabbard is a secret messenger from like an underworld king. This is actually related to an amusement that's in the next <laughs> issue of Current Affairs. Um, nobody can disprove it. That's amazing. <laughs> nobody can disprove anyway, it. Anyway, uh, subscribe. Nobody can disprove it. We have a very cool amusement coming out in the next issue of Current Affairs and you should pick it up and you can see, you can see what her underworld form looks like. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, re- I really liked, um, uh, Lida, what you had to say about Bernie. I thought, I thought that was great. You know, we need to hold, um, even, even these more like left-leaning social Democrat leaders, uh, accountable on their, their shortcomings and their failures. Cause that's how we're going to keep moving things left, keep making things better for working people. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, that's about it. About it. It's been a good, been a, been a good. <laughs> it's been a, been a good, been a good ride. I think we should do this monthly. We should do this monthly. Like just pull this <laughs> panel together monthly, just to talk politics. I'm totally down. A oh, monthly? I, I was gonna say every other day. <laughs> <sighs> That's a lot of recording. Um, my final thoughts are are just simply that Bloomberg looks like he is made of sand, and. <laughs> The, the man has never pet a dog before in his life. Dude, the man no, has never had you. a pint of ice cream in his hand in his life. Did you see that ad? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What was that ice Big cream? Big gay thing? ice cream. <laughs> Big gay ice cream. I'm just confused, but I'm also confused that that makes him seem more in touch with, like, the quote-unquote gay community than Buttigieg, which is just weird. Yeah, I just... I look at that. I was talking in a different chat about it where it was just like he's never he looks like he's never eaten an ice cream from the pint in his entire life. Like he, it's like he didn't even know what to do with the spoon. I'm sh- I'm sure I am sure that there are spit takes of that commercial and I want to find them. That's it. Bloomberg's weird and creepy. And the fact that we have a billionaire caucus in this current election is making me want to pull my hair out. So. Those are my final parting thoughts on this super long recording. Well, and and uh, I guess like um, since we're taking our final thoughts to kind of comment on the remaining um, candidates uh, outside of the top five, I just uh, had two things uh, left to say that are on our shared Google Doc for this episode. 
one is my hypothesis that Tulsi Gabbard is just an anagram for Ben Gibbard. And this is all a ploy <laughs> to sell records. <laughs> Think about it. I know the letters don't match. <laughs> but look look past so it. it's not an anagram and uh you know i was gonna say I've, I've always thought it was like a cryptic message that that was saying tulsa graboids <laughs> that, that we're, we're about to have a graboid invasion in tulsa so uh people in tulsa look out and uh and lida you had a really important note here on tom steyer if i'm not mistaken oh yeah oh god i didn't do my whole steyer rant Oh, okay. Very, very quick. It's extremely relatable to be that thirsty for a friend. Like, probably any friend in Steyer's case, but also like a specific friend. I I appreciate how much he wants to be Bernie's friend. I think it's kind of sweet. I don't think it's very sweet that he's running at all, because like he obviously could just fucking drop out. Um, But it's actually really gross how much, as as Mel was saying, it's gross that there's a fucking billionaire caucus. It's just, it's, it's vile. They, they're running he and Bloomberg have so much ad money they, they've running TV ads fucking everywhere it's really obnoxious um but Steyer is a thirsty bitch and I do respect a thirsty bitch so I don't know Steyer I hope I hope you drop out I hope you get some friends um it, it's really funny that he's just following Bernie around trying to be his friend and on that note Steyer Steyer is a thirsty bitch and and thank you all again so much for joining us Uh, to everyone listening I hope this was useful write in let us know your thoughts Um, and please 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 subscribe to Current Affairs subscribe to their podcast on Patreon Uh, check out Horror Vanguard subscribe to their great podcast on Patreon um, check out uh, Strike Wave. Sign up for their amazing newsletter. Share the great work that they are doing to kind of spread the news about the labor movement. Um, follow them on Twitter. We're going to start taking donations soon so that we can, uh, rather than paying out of our own pockets, we can start paying uh, writers um, on a consistent basis on a reader supported way. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Hell yeah. And, you know, of course, um, subscribe to and support Protean Magazine. Um, and, you know, if you if you have uh, anything left over, subscribe to Working People on Patreon. Um, you know, we, we love you. And, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>